a Living History production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm joined at Mon House. Mon Repose. Mon Repose by Peter Hart. Hello, Gary. Hello, Pete. How are you feeling today, mate? I'm good, I'm good. I've uh, been to the oral hygienist today and she says I'm going to die of heart attack, uh, diabetes and, uh, and uh, oh, that business where you lose your marbles and can't remember things. I've forgotten what it's called. Alzheimer's. Apparently, the, this person who's paid £70 a session says if you don't go regularly, then you get all them and die. I'm glad you've been to the oral hygienist because then you won't be having a potty mouth today, will we? <sighs> There's no need for that. Anyway, where are we? Well, it's, uh, we've got to get on with it because it's a longer episode well, than usual. Well, rather bizarrely, this is a, uh, a continuation of our South Knots Hussars in peacetime. And what's it called? Uh, it's called At War in Iraq. Yeah, I haven't probably thought this through too well, have I? In the last episode, those of you who listened closely will remember that that was all about... The, the lead up to the war and uh, this, this is the Iraq war uh, in 2003, the lead up to it and how the South Nazis were required to provide individual uh, reservists to go. And we looked at how they chose them and some of the uh, welfare arrangements. And some of the odd uh, units that they ended up yeah, supporting. Uh, yeah, that, that. So let's get straight into this, Pete. The, uh, the flight out to Kuwait City in March 2003 was unremarkable. Until they actually landed. Yeah, uh, and, and what, happened, what, what do you think they noticed when they landed? Well, after all the briefings as to the roasting climate, they found it deeply ironic to be met by conditions more reminiscent of Bullwell than the desert. And this is uh, signaller Dan Zed, uh, who, uh, who says this. Got off the plane, thought, right, the weather's going to be really hot. It was raining. I couldn't believe it. I thought they'd flown us around in a circle and landed us back at Bryce Norton. It was absolutely pissing it down. Humid, but thrashing it down with rain. I got soaked. I thought, this is the desert. It's not supposed to rain. Good old Dan. <laughs> now, as they'd been warned, uh, they were sent to join the 3rd Close Support Medical Regiment who were in camp in the desert. Here, some of them found themselves training for an extremely dubious and were still dangerous role. So it's no wonder that the regulars <laughs> didn't want this particular task, is it? You can just imagine regulars saying, what can we do with the TA? <laughs> yeah, so, and this is uh, Gunner Andrew T. What's he say, Gary? We would drive to a location and we would walk in mine detectors. We would pull up where the recce had checked out as a suitable position for the field hospital. The two Bedfords would pull up. We jump out and go to the other point to make a triangle, walk all the way round the edge of it, and then sweep the middle of it, checking for mines. Then they'd bring the rest of them in. Now, the others, they were... Put out. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I've blown up. <laughs> the others were put out on training to act as a defence platoon to the field hospital with a concentration on their uh, patrolling skills. One of them, Bombardier Ray A., was an experienced ex-regular who'd served in the Gulf War and he was soon singled out for service with the 1st Close Support Medical Regiment. And you're going to tell us what Bombardier Ray A said. They said, write down all your qualifications that we can use. I wrote down mine and they said, 
Flipping heck! You can get on the forward evacuation squadron, the armoured ambulances which are attached to the fusiliers and the Black Watch. I left the rest of the lads and never saw them again. <clears throat> they had six... This is the unit you went to. They had six 432. You you might know the 432s, Gary. I think they're... Just after my time, I think. Just before, I think. Oh, before. <laughs> 432s, APCs, uh, armoured personnel carrier. Gary, you knew that, didn't you? Yes. Uh, and you had one commander, one medic and a driver in each one. Me being a full screw. Were you ever a full screw, Gary? That's a full corporal two stripes. Were you ever that? That's a full corporal two stripes. <laughs> Were you briefly that? <laughs> Very briefly. Uh, the, uh, for, I, I should have gone as a commander, but the lance jack, who was a driver, said, Ooh, can I command Ray? He was after promotion, you see. I said, yeah, if you want. I'll drive. If you want to command it, command it. And that's what I did. Hmm. Cheery coat. I'm just thinking where the lance jack was from. It was Kenneth Williams' country. <laughs> now, as the outbreak of war neared... Uh, the lack of the the proper desert kit was increasingly annoying. Well, they, well I mean, sure, yeah, I can imagine the shortage of body army. Uh, that would um, that would be a bit of a worry, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, although, what do you remember about body armour? We saw some of it the other day in uh, in the Warwickshire Yeomanry, I think. I was well, the, the ceramic plates only really covered the chest and heart area, but they were at least something. Uh, but uh, the green uniform, as Dan Z succinctly put it, left them uh, standing out like a spare prick at a wedding. It also naturally attracted the heat. <laughs> Imagine dark green. Uh, while the normal black leather issue boots, as opposed to desert boots, made their feet suffer agony. So, well, I mean, what temperatures are out there, would you say? I mean, I, I mean, we sometimes suffer at Gallipoli, where it's 30 to 35. Well, what's it there, do you reckon? Well, something over 40 degrees. I Centigrade. <laughs> now, it was fortunate that Adam X was sent to work in the quartermaster's stores because uh, he managed to show considerable initiative by distracting the quartermaster sergeant while issuing some more desert kit to those who were still wearing green uniform. Yeah, yeah. I, but we'll come back to this. Dan Zed... He was still in his greens almost to the end of his tour of duty six months later. Did he complain, Gary? No, but he would have observed. He observed a lot. I remember him observing. Uh, as they train, they, they get ever more familiar with the, the regulars' range of weapons. But some of them are new to the TA. I'm not sure how you'd have used any of these. Um, uh, no, SAA, had... he was definitely after my time. It was the SLR during my service. Oh, yeah, yeah. Heavy. Yeah. Now, the SA-80A2 was judged a marked improvement on the earlier A1 version. Well, it was far less flimsy and it was much less vulnerable to sand. That that sounds important. (laughs) Yes, that is important, Pete. Regularly cleaned and oiled and even in the harsh desert environment, it would give little trouble. That's perfect. What else do they get? Well, they got the light support weapon, LSW. Uh, uh, that, that's a bipod thing. It, it, it was, in effect, a, a light machine gun. It's a replacement for the Bren, isn't it? Now, the general purpose machine gun, which is the GPMG, was a superb weapon. Uh, it was easy to load, reliable, and generating a concentrated firepower over the beaten zone. And, and some of my friends uh, say, uh, you know, when you want to kill everything, GPMG. Yeah. Uh, did you ever forget on that? No. You should have. Had, uh, never mind. Uh, your your day. They wouldn't let me near anything sharp or lethal. <laughs> and the GPMG is as lethal. Now, um, uh, what was their absolute favourite though? The real boy's own weapon of the day. Uh, it's the uh, belt-fed five point five six millimeter mini me machine gun, uh, which gave 
devastating firepower, but was at the same time lighter to carry than the GPMG. And a lot of them, a lot of them in Iraq and Afghanistan talk about that. Now, uh, one of the South Stars was found was soon separated from the rest of them, and that was Troop Sergeant Major Andy P. And he, where was he sent? Well, he'd been sent straight out to the headquarters, 7th Parachute Regiment, Royal Horse Artillery. Now, here, he was utterly amazed to find that his lifetime of experience in command post duties at every level was utterly irrelevant as far as the regulars were concerned. Oh, I can't imagine how he felt. His emotions... I mean, he... He was just given a, a, a completely sort of nebulous, useless job that left him feeling a bit like a fish out of water. And, and suiting the uh, the person to the deeds, you, you're going to say what he said, as you are a bit like a fish out of water. I thought he was going to say you're a bit like a sergeant major. No, Gary. He called me out and he went, aviation, tack. I'd never heard of it in my life. I thought, what's that shit? I'm a command post man. To find out I wasn't going on a CP or even on a gun position, well, I was well pissed off. I'd done 20 years regular anti-A service and to go out to fight a war holding the rank of Sergeant Major and you're put in a completely new environment. Now, yeah. Tact, that's the tactical air command. He was a great bloke, uh, Andy. And I remember him say, sat in front of me saying he, he, he was going to be a... a, a uh, he was an artillery advisor in the forward planning centre of the aviation tack. That's the... What, what did you decide? Tactical Air Command, I decided. Uh, and, that, well, that was attached to the Army Air Corps. And it's basically monitoring uh, the OP's observation posts going forward in the helicopters. It, it sounds pretty important to me, but is it? No, because it was really just one of the uh, watchkeepers' roles, monitoring the work of others on the situation map table in the brigade headquarters of 16th Air Assault Brigade. And Sergeant Major Andy P goes on to say this, Although I had the rank of Sergeant Major and everyone was standing to attention, I felt completely useless at times. I felt well out of my depth and at times I was completely pissed off. They kept reassuring me and saying, I know it's all new to you, but you are helping, even if it's just everyday admin in the field. To me, it's just common sense. What you should be doing, keeping everything tidy and keeping on top of things. That's like us. We keep everything tidy and we're on top of things. Yes. Now, once the rest of the South Nazis Hussars draft had acclimatised, most of them too were informed that they would be posted to join uh, Troops Aunt Major Andy P at 7th RHA. No, it's, uh, so they were only at that medical unit for a while while they acclimatised. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, well, perhaps not. Uh, this, now, they're part of the 22nd Air Assault Brigade and they're the local uh, artillery support to the 1st and 3rd Battalions, the Parachute Regiment, and the 1st Battalion, Royal Irish Regiment. And uh, they, who else they got in in that uh, brigade? Well, the uh, Household Cavalry Regiment for Armoured Reconnaissance Functions. And in turn, the, the 22nd Air Assault Brigade is part of the 1st UK Armoured Division. Uh, was there a 2nd and 3rd UK Armoured Division? I don't think so. I think that was rather hastily put together, wasn't it? Yes. At the, at the moment, we'd, we'd struggle to put out an armoured brigade now, wouldn't we? Uh, but things have moved on. Um, and, and that, alongside various assorted uh, formations with extra armoured, you know, it, 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 there's bits and bobs of armour, bits and bobs of uh, firepower. Uh, that's the bulk of the British contingent to the coalition forces. And remember, the coalition forces is largely the British and the Americans, isn't it? Um, and completely dominated by the US forces, yeah. I think it's fair to say. Now, when they arrived at the 7th RHA, 
Gunner Adam X went to join Sergeant Parr's gun detachment, which was B-sub of Ball Troop 1st Battery. I think that's I Battery. Oh, is it? Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being... Diff- I just remember 7th RHA had an I Battery. I can see why you'd think it was a 1. Because it, it looks is like a 1. <laughs> now, here he found the experience of joining a pre-existing team somewhat intimidating. I find it somewhat intimidating join, joining this team. Yeah, get on and with it. This is Gunner Adam X of 7th Regiment. A lot of these lads had served in Afghanistan and a lot of other places. They were quite used to what was happening. It was all new to me. They tried the best they could to help me settle in and get to know them. That night they said, do I want to move into the tent where they were? So I went from the tent with all the TA lads to move in with them. It was good to get to know them. And that's sensible. That's very sensible. And uh, uh, by this time, they're, they're not at war yet. The UK and US High Command, they're, but they're preparing their plans for war, aren't they? And uh, well, what's going on? Uh, well, the one thing I found fascinating in these interviews was they had, they built huge berms. Boo? A boom. Sand. Like sand hills. They're artificial sand hills. Uh, well, they, a beam. A beam. They, they, they did them with, uh, I think they did them with bulldozers. They're not, dirt, they're not with, you know. And they're Iraq, they were all along the Kuwait-Iraq border. Uh, I remember that on the news. I remember seeing that. And they blew, they had to big, of course, having built them, they had to, they had to build, blow a hole in them uh, uh, so that the, the engineers would, so that the US troops would, could charge forward, supported by the 7th RHA, uh, and they would, in fact, the 7th RHA, be the, uh, the first British regiment across the Iraqi border. I, I want to say that that's just what they say. I have no idea whether that's true or not, because we don't really know much about this, do we? No, as is becoming increasingly clear during the podcast. Yeah. Now, as the clock ticked down towards war, the training intensified. There was continuous practice on the gun drill on the light gun, with particular emphasis on swapping roles in case of casualties. Ooh, uh, the, the 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 actually the gun crows. The, another thing is the crows. Gun, crew, yeah, gun crows is the what they called in certain parts. Oh, right. The gun crews <laughs> were uh, were deliberately overmanned, so there was ten of them when there'd normally only be six. Again, all this is in case of casualties. It's it's sensible. Uh, do they do any infantry training as well? Yeah, it uh, certainly wasn't uh, neglected. With five to ten kilometre runs across the desert sands, wearing f- oh god, wearing full kit and long sessions of weapons training to sharpen their skills. Do you think they observed anything about that? I think that? they would have observed an awful lot. And Gunner Adam X <laughs> observed this. I was taught how to use a bayonet correctly. Running at the dummies, stabbing, cutting them down. One of the sergeants was stood in our face and screaming at us to wind us up and get us aggravated, to get the adrenaline flowing. It was quite weird because we were being filmed by the BBC. Everyone was excited knowing that we were going to be on telly doing something really warry. The camera was right up in your face. One of the sergeants was acting as safety and he was right next to one of the lads as he was thrust in the bayonet and he was caught down the side of the face. The cameraman was filming and they had him just walking away with all blood dripping off his face. I can remember saying as he walked past the camera, this is how realistic the training is, which was quite funny. The lad who'd done it was really shitting himself. A lot of the lads back home said they saw it on the screen on the news. Yes. Now, Adam X, he was in a gun detachment run by, uh, well, he was a, a, a sympathetic uh, sergeant. I think it's uh, Sergeant Parr, isn't it? Oh, I've forgotten his name already. Uh, and this sergeant, what, what, what do a lot of 
regulars like yourself, Gary, think uh, uh, the TA were? Uh, well, I what never was it? What was the I never term? Did. It was stab, which was stupid territorial army bastard. Yeah, and that is, I mean, it's almost banned in the army now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but uh, this emphatically was not the case for Gunnar Andrew T, who was met with brutal insensitivity. So this is this is this is the thing. So Adam X, he was lucky, uh, but uh, but 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 uh, Gunnar Andrew T, he, he was unlucky. Unlucky. So what does Gunnar Andrew T, Seventh RHA, say? The number one chucked a GPMG at me. Here, here you are. There's your weapon. I've never seen one. I goes, what do I do with this? He just turned away and walked off. I'd never seen it, never mind worked it. I didn't have a clue. I thought that was pretty bad. If he was going to lose interest in me, I was going to lose interest in them. I got shown how to load it. When it came to the real thing, and I didn't know how to operate it, there were four GPMGs per gun battery, and if one goes down, that's a bit of a disappointment. They were making sure that I felt I was unwanted and that I wasn't as good as they were. It made me think, what am I doing out here? Yeah. Uh, now, uh, ready or not, that, that, you know that ticking clock? How does a ticking clock go? Tick. Tock. Tick. Tock. Yeah. Um, Tick. Uh, <laughs> the, the generals and politicians typed out, wait for no man or woman. So it, so it was that on the night of the 19th of March 2003, the men got the news they'd been anticipating, or in some cases dreading, depending on their personality and situation. Uh, and this is, this is what uh, Gunner Adam X, 7th RHA, said. The battery sergeant major came back and said, right, lads, this is it, we're going. The orders have come down. We're going to the border. Everyone was running around like headless chickens, finding all their kit, getting their rifles. Ammunition was issued. All the kit was loaded onto the wagons. The last check to make sure that everyone had rifle, MBC kit, body armour and helmets. We mounted up onto the Pinsgau wagons. I think they're Mercedes wagons. Actually, yeah, I think they are. Uh, we moved towards the border where we went into our first gun position. It was dark. It was just coming up to about 10 o'clock at night. Now, the uh, next day, the war started. That, that, that's that's the, the history. It'll be there forever in the history books, unless it's written by someone like me, where they probably get the year wrong. <laughs> or the day, or <laughs> the, the day month. Of the month. Uh, but what was that day? Come on, Gary, that day that goes down in history. Well, given that it was the 19th of March of the day before, I'd say it was the 20th of March 2003. Maths with Gary. Now, at first, little changed as they uh, dug themselves trenches. However keen they were, this was a nervy time. And this is, again, gonna Adam X. Next minute, we could hear jets and planes going over. The number one said, right, it started. That's the airstrikes going in. It started to sink in then that we were actually going to war. It was quite weird. I wasn't scared, just more nervous, anxious to see what was going to happen. I can remember not getting much sleep that night. There were planes going in all night and we could hear explosions in the distance. Now, so remember, Adam X is a supportive unit uh, or our section. Uh, poor old Andrew T, he's having a nightmare. It's a stressful nightmare. Uh, he's marooned with a gun detachment. They don't want him and they don't like him. And what does he say, Gunder and Andrew T? There was still tension. I started to panic as these lot were making it really clear that they don't want or like me being there. I started hyperventilating and I went to see the medic. I sat down, started talking to him about the tension. 
I would stay on the gun. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to get the satisfaction. I'm not going to be able to put 110% in when I didn't feel I was part of that crew. If you're not there in your head, you're not going to be any good. And in the end, uh, I mean, I think he's a good soldier. He's been spoiled by the treatment he received. And he was transferred to the stores at headquarters at 7th RHA. Still, by the way, playing an important role. Just as important, people forget. Logistics. What what did Rob Thompson used to say about logistics? That they were important. So basically, an unsympathetic and contemptuous reception had ruined his chance to weld himself into his gun detachment to form part of a real team. So do we blame them? Uh, there's no doubt that if there was a, a failure here, then it lay squarely at the door of the NCO who was meant to be looking after him, and clearly wasn't. Yeah, now, so that night, the balloon goes up. The US troops move across the border, and that meant that the 7th RHA was going into action in support. It also meant that those members of the, uh, the South Nazis who attached them would be in action for the first time since the Second World War. And this is a big thing. This is, this is the South Nazis in peacetime at war. And this is once more Gunnar Adam X, because I'm doing everything. You're doing everything, Gary. It was about three in the morning, he said, Right, lads, get up, start manning the guns because we might get a fire mission soon. The Americans were going over first to take the GOSP, the oil refineries just inside Iraq. There wasn't really much resistance from the Iraqi ground troops. It was about half four in the morning. It was still dark when we got our first fire mission. I think the target was an Iraqi mortar position. It was the first time I'd actually live fired. We loaded the gun, stood there quiet for a couple of minutes before we actually got the word... Fire! Our gun was the first gun to fire out of the whole regiment. The number one was proud about that. We fired the second round, and then the gun broke. The actual barrel dropped out of the gun, which the number one was pissed off about. That's, that's a testimony to British equipment, that is. That's not good. It's uh, embarrassing, to say the least, would you not say? Yeah, and it took a while before the uh, tiffies turned up to repair the gun. That's uh, artificers in posh language. Yeah. Uh, but just then, something potentially far more serious than a mere embarrassment shot them to the very core. What happens, Gunner Adam X? We got gas, 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 which was scary. The Iraqis were firing scuds. We could see them going up from where we were. We were already in full NBC. NBC, so just remind me. Nuclear, what... biological and chemical. Uh, but it was the first time we masked up. We got in the trench in case one landed near us. That was really scary. There wasn't any gas and the scuds were shot down by the American Patriot missiles. The scuds were right up above our heads, coming towards us, fired towards Q8. For the first time, we carried out the individual sniff test. You walk up, uh, sorry, you walk up wind and break the seal on your respirator. One deep breath in, breathe out, mask back on. Then you had to stand there and watch each other for five minutes to look for any sign of chemical attack. In large pupils, smaller pupils, vomiting, sweating, anything like that. After that, we got gas clear and we all unmasked, which was quite a relief. Yeah, do you remember this... down the mines when you used to take a canary? Well, I was just thinking of last time I went with you to Eeps and that was a bit like looking at you. <laughs> Enlarged pupils, small pupils, one large, one small, sweating profusely, the odd bit of vomit. Alcohol poisoning. <laughs> Terrible thing. Now, meanwhile, Bombardier Warren Y was back at the holding camp in Kuwait where he'd 
uh, still, well, he's still not been assigned to a unit. It was like, call up. If you remember, he, he was after everybody yeah, he else. Was, yeah, was, uh, yeah. And uh, he was experiencing his first SCUD missile attack. And this is what uh, Warren said. We heard the air raid sirens. They were all triggered off by the Patriot missile batteries the Americans had set up to defend Kuwait City. It's quite surreal. I was with Sergeant Paul Duberak, and he's automatically got his, his stuff, his NBC kit straight on. And he just came over, clipped me around the ear roll and said, for fuck's sake, get your respirator on. I got it on within the two seconds, which was my, in like two seconds, which was my quickest ever. It's masking nine or die. Basically, you have nine seconds. He took control of me because I was a bit, my God, what's happening? It's the first time I'd ever known anything like this. This was real. Somebody was firing missiles at me now. Then you get straight under cover as soon as you can. And we were near a concrete bunker with sand on top. As soon as you got under cover, you immediately start putting on your NBC suits. We heard the Patriots fire and they took the two Scud missiles out. And again, I can understand that people being nervous and scared. Because remember all that propaganda about how everyone was going to die. You had nine seconds, all the rest of it. Now, 0400 on the 22nd, uh, the 7th RHA went over the Iraqi border, but strange to say, most of the men were asleep in their tower, towers. Nearly did it. <laughs> well, I think you did do it, Kerry. Towers <laughs> and Land Rovers at the symbolic moment. They then woke up to take up their gun positions to cover the US assault on the GOSP. Uh, now, for a gunner, it was the ultimate thrill to fire the gun in action. And this is what gunner Adam X says. We were firing at dug-in trench positions. It was quite good because we could actually see the rounds landing. So that was quite good to watch. It was landing where it was meant to land. So I think it was accurate. I was doing ammo and loading, swapping over the rolls because we were starting to get tired. We had an eight-man crew and four would man the gun. Then we'd swap over. We were doing a lot of firing and moving, getting into position, fire, then move to the next position, fire, then move. It was mainly at tanks, armoured personnel carriers, Iraqi artillery, infantry and mortar positions. A lot of the time, we didn't know what the targets were. Meanwhile, signaller Dan Zed, he was attached to the headquarters battery of 7th RHA. And uh, as they move forward, he, he sees a terrific sight. And this is uh, signaller Dan Zed. He says this, I could feel the heat of the oil wells. The Iraqis had managed to set a light to a few of the, of the oil heads. They were spurting off massive balls of flame, but you could feel the heat coming through the skin of a Land Rover. And at that point, we'll take a short break. Welcome back. I think we left you with massive balls of flame, Pete. <laughs> now, around this time... Bombardier Warren Y was finally posted forward, not as a battle casualty replacement, but simply to make up the numbers of Ball Troop I Battery 7th RHA. And as such, he went through a grim process that seemed to exaggerate his distance from home. And this is Bombardier Warren Y. We were going uh, within a kilometre of the front line of the fighting. Then they took us through the process of getting us sanitised. A particularly nasty process. Not nasty as in painful, but emotionally it is, because you're not allowed to have any pictures of your wife or your family or anything like that. You, you lay everything out, literally down to your underpants. They say you can have that, that and that, but all this goes in a brown envelope with your name, rank and number on, and you don't see it to the end of the war. Everything that's personal to you that can be used against you. A wedding ring. You're married. 
A good interrogator can manipulate everything. And I, I, anything, everything and anything. Uh, I think that's, uh, you can imagine what, what he thought. And Warren, uh, Warren White then moves up uh, behind the adv- adv- advancing troops. Uh, and he's travelling in a supply truck. Uh, and he's going to join the rest of his mates in 7th RHA. Now, once he got there, he was delighted to find several of the, several of the lads from the South Nazis. And once more, you're going to tell us what Bombardier Warren White said. Gunner Adam X was on the guns. He was loving it. He was bouncing around like a bunny rabbit. He was absolutely loving it. He was chuffed a bit to see me because he was on my gun crew back at home. He was a fantastic bloke, obviously quite scared, but well up for it. He was so excited about what was happening that he couldn't even contain himself. I thought he was going to explode. And, you know, that's, you know, it's good to... Now, by this time, the rear A2 echelon of the 7th RHA was established in an old oil refinery in the GOSP. This was where the stores the non-essential kit and all the administrative and clerical functions remained. Now, in front of that, just closer to the front, was A1 echelon, and that's where the regimental sergeant major was based with the ammunition stores. Now, when he when he got there, Bombardier Warren Y was assigned to dri- driving a Leyland DAF. I don't know what the DAF stands for, but a Leyland, it's an ammunition truck. And he was a city, he had a gunner to assist him, probably swapping over and, and, and uh, as, a, as a co-driver. Now, the routine was simple. Pallet loads of ammunition and charges were loaded onto the truck by the forklift truck, safely strapped on, and then they drove across the desert to the latest gun positions. Now, you've got to remember that the 7th RHA, that's not just a battery like the, uh, the South Nazis were at this time. It's a full regiment. Uh, and what is a full regiment? Come on, come on. What is it, Gary? What is it? Well, it deploys six guns per battery, so that's uh, to, 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 uh, 18 guns in all. Uh, and the gun positions uh, were a, uh, a major construction site, dispersed as they were, stretched out in a roughly straight line and with about 20 to 30 metres between neighbouring guns. So that, that would have covered a huge area. Yeah, and, and what were the gun pits? Well, this is what Bombardier Warren Y says. If you were lucky, the engineers would dig you a gun pit. They'd come up with their big JCB diggers and just shovel it up. What it would be is three big banks, one in front and two to the sides, with the bank at the front low enough to give you the elevation to achieve your t- uh, targets, but high enough to stop any shrapnel hitting you. They left you about 15, 20 metres all the way around the gun pit to put your ammunition and everything else. You would dig shell scrapes to the right-hand side of the gun for people to sleep in, about a foot deep, so that when you were lying down, it would cover over the top of your head. The vehicles would just be parked at the rear, one for the crew and the equipment, one just full of ammunition. They managed to fit something like 85 rounds in the back of this truck, and they weren't very big. Maybe a little smaller than a transit van. That's that's interesting. I was picturing it as bigger than that. The regiment had been briefed that their next move would be up to the uh, Rumalia Bridge to the northwest of Basra, where they would have to cross the mighty Tigris River. That was uh, where all the shit would hit the fan. Yeah, the original bridge had already been blown up by the Iraqis and the Allied engineers were tasked with making a temporary repair and they were being covered in turn by the US Marines and 3rd Parachute Brigade. And of course they were in turn being covered by who? Guess who? Guess who? Guess who was covering them? Uh, The intensive fire support from the 7th RHA and Apache helicopters which were buzzing low over the uh, over the battlefield. People often talk about the firepower they can generate. Have you seen films of the Apaches firing? It's amazing, isn't it? Their main targets were units of the Iraqi artillery and this once more is Gunner Adam X. We were on one side of the river 
moving up and down the river all night, firing on selected targets. A lot of them were the D-30 batteries, which is the Iraqi artillery. I think we took out five batteries that night. We were a battery. That was a lot of vehicles and people. And to know that you took out five batteries in one night, it was quite weird that we'd killed that amount of people and caused that much damage. And we both want to emphasise that... uh there's some boys' own element to this, but Adam, uh, you know, enjoying it and uh, people bouncing about. But the Iraqis are having a murderous time during this. I mean, they they are being slaughtered, um, uh, really slaughtered. Uh, their return fire was that effective? Do you think the Iraqi return fire? No, no, not at all. And uh, it wasn't a fair fight. But then war never is, is it? No. Not only were the Iraqi observation post systems and fire control primitive in comparison, but the British had a secret weapon. What was it? Well, Bombardier Warren White's going to tell us. We had Mamba. I bet that's a, a, an acronym that we don't know the meaning of. You could, you'd be betting right there. This is incredibly accurate. You had one per battery. It could operate out to 35 kilometres on a complete 180-degree axis in front of it. It would keep it would just keep scanning the area. What it could do was that as soon as a round was fired, an enemy round, it would note the 10-figure grid reference where it was fired from, exactly what charge it was fired on, the height of it and where it was going to land, and it could predict it to within one metre. This is amazing to me, isn't it? Uh, A few times they got very, very close to the guns, and they would say, gun number three, take cover, because they knew that that was the only round that was going to land near it. So you had a pre-warning before the rounds landed and they could get out of the way. The closest one got was about 10 metres in front of the gun. Fortunately, the sandbank took the hit. That's the gun pit sandbank. And they just jumped straight back up and started firing back again. This is a really fantastic bit of kit. And without a doubt, without a doubt one of the biggest lifesavers for the artillery. And I've never heard of the Mamba. I've not. No, I've not. Now, amazingly, uh, amazingly soon, the temporary bridge was completed and the convoy of uh, Allied vehicles began to cross the Tigris on the 30th of March. Uh, they w- it's all happening very quickly, isn't it? Yeah, well, they went across with a precautionary 100-metre gap between each vehicle. And, uh, what once, was that? <laughs> and once more, this is Gunner Adam X. There was a big section of it missing, about 20 foot. So they put up a makeshift bridge across the gap. We drove over dead thin ramps, just wide enough for the tyres. It was pitch black, so that was quite scary. Now, crossing this... Can you imagine this frail bridge and there's the the black swirling waters of the Tigris below them? And and they were under Iraqi fire as well. It it must have been an experience of a lifetime. And and it was, because this is what Bombardier Warren Y says. It was getting quite dark, and you could see the river stretching out. The Tigris River is a huge river. It takes about two minutes to get across the river, driving at 70 miles per hour. So you'll probably be able to work out how wide it was. Oh, yeah, it's wide. Yeah. As we came towards the river, you could see all the Iraqi positions start firing with their tanks, and you got small arms coming in then. We were we were held back just the other side of the bridge. We got out and got into a position where we weren't in a direct line of fire with them. We were told, get your heads down, keep out of the way. We were lying underneath the rear end of the bridge to the right. It's all happening front right. The tanks that they were going to that, that were going to do this, we were the, uh, the the tanks were going to sort this out. That's what he means. We were lying about a kilometer away, absolutely shitting ourselves. The Challenger two are awesome. This one tank, it was firing. 
firing, doing about 45 miles per hour, and he engaged five tanks in five minutes. We spoke to a tank commander, and he said, you're only limited by how fast you can load the weapon. I could take out three tanks in 10 seconds. The loader is the one that loads and fires. He's given a target, he's told to load, and boom, it's fired. Meanwhile, the commander is independent from the rest of the tank. He can pick targets. He finds it, fires a laser, designates it, and it's locked in. As soon as one's done, the barrel swings round and fires at that one. So he's always two or three targets ahead of the loader. As fast as a loader can load and fire it, you can take out an infinite number of targets. And it hits first time every time. And of course, they were using depleted uranium, which is a quite nasty piece of kit. They call it the soup maker. Because when you open up the back of an enemy tank, it is literally just soup. There's nothing left of human beings. Wow. Now, once across, the 7th RHA were ordered to fire their machine guns in support of the infantry. Warren Y had been equipped with a mini-me machine gun that we mentioned earlier, and this is Bombardier Warren Y. The 3rd Parrot had engaged the main force, the Iraqi main force, and they were doing it very well. By this time, one section of three guns had got across the Tigris Bridge and deployed. They started firing at very, very close range with the ammunition they'd got on the trucks because we couldn't resupply them. They were they were firing only about 100 yards ahead of the infantry and then they were looping forward. There was no OPs. The number ones were making their judgments themselves. One error and they would be killing their own guys. That was going really well. It was pretty quick, mainly because of all the firepower. We took up positions firing at soft-skinned vehicles who were bugging out, basically. That means just running away. They gathered all the machine guns together, all the GPMGs, all the Minimis, and used them as a three or four gun sections. I was on the Minimi, a fantastic weapon. It really is superb. We were only about 400 metres away, and you could see you were hitting and taking people out. I was aware that I was killing people. It was quite obvious to all of us that every single person that was firing in those sections as individuals were all killing people. It is a job. And the adrenaline kicks in. You don't feel anything about it until afterwards. You're so fearful for what's going to happen to you and the guy next to you. They say in the army it's all about the team and the battery. But that's bollocks. All you give a shit about is yourself and the man next to you. Because that's it. At the end of the day, all you've got there, you and your muckers. It's a cliche, a band of brothers. But it's true. When it comes to cut and thrust, if there's only five blokes there, then they're the only five blokes you can rely on at that point in time. There must have been 25,000 to 35,000 rounds fired that night. There was quite a lot of return fire, but it wasn't effective return fire. Spray and pray, which is typical of those sorts of forces. He means the Iraqis weren't properly trained, doesn't he? They would fire in the general direction of where you were, not necessarily at the right height. The vehicles were being hit by the, their vehicles were being hit by uh, the, the Apache helicopters who concentrated on them. We were mopping up uh, what was getting away from the main force. Over 75% of them were killed and the rest of them just sat there, laid their weapons in front of them and sat there with their hands up. And when the parachute guys came back, they took them prisoner. And this is a real slaughter, this is, Gary. As the Iraqi survivors fell back, the 7th RHA began moving rapidly from gun position to gun position, keeping up and alongside the infantry they were supporting. Their role was to clear up any pockets of resistance left by the further advanced US forces who were intent solely on bypassing opposition and pushing forward without any delay 
ever onwards to Baghdad. Now, the infantry were the 3rd Parachute Regiment. Now, we've, we mentioned that, and they're in charge of mopping up. And this is Bombardier Warren Y of 7th RHA. He says, the 3rd Parachute Regiment were pushing forward. They were very effective soldiers, and I wouldn't want them coming at me like screaming banshees. One of them said to me that his whole idea about warfare was to get stripped bollock naked with a bayonet and rifle and go for it. But that's a parachute regiment for you. He was a bit of an animal. And you must have heard that from your time in the... Well, also, we mentioned it in Gallipoli when I said I wouldn't want to do it naked. naked. Yeah, so you're not a parachutist, are no. you? No. Now, as the guns were dropping into position, they would fire as quickly as possible, and the Iraqi D-30 field howitzers fired back as best they could. There were some close shaves from their plunging shells. And once more, because you're working very hard now, this is Bombardier Warren Y. We had a D-30 round go off about 15 15 metres above our vehicle. One big almighty bang! It took the windscreen out. We were blown out of the doors as the glass came in. I was sitting there lying on my back and my ears were ringing something chronic. It took about three days before this went. The battery sergeant major came over, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you don't want to be there, do you, kid? Get back in your truck and drive over there. (laughs) We were shaken up a bit. I like that. Now you don't want to be there, so drive over there. Now, they were rested back at the ammunition point until their truck was repaired. But Warren Wyatt got his chance to hit back personally when he managed to persuade the uh, amenable Sergeant Parr, who was Gunner Adam X's number one, to allow him to temporarily join the gun crew. Well, yeah, Warren Wyatt was a very competent trained gunner and he'd been dying to get his actual chance to fire these bangy things after years of training on the FH-70 and the light gun. He was the one who'd been trained by Smudge Smith and then and then Latterly Sam Jordan. Sam Jordan yeah. yeah, and and he didn't want to be a driver. He actually won gun, gun, gun awards, so, you know. It was uh, guns that were his passion. That's why he joined the TA. Yeah, and what did he say? Well, he said this. We were distributing ammunition. I managed to fire five missions because I kept jumping off the back of the wagon and pestering the number ones to let me fire the gun and, uh, and wouldn't give them their ammunition until they did. To one in particular, Sergeant Parr, I said, Go on, mate, just let me fire the guns. I want to say I fired a gun in anger in a war. Twice he hit me. Not hard, but he'd shove me or punch me and say, Piss off. By about the fourth time, he said, Can you lay the gun? I said, I'm a gun detachment commander. He went, Well, get in the fucking seat then and shut up. So I'm sat there, I've got my layers screen, and the orders are coming down. It was a 25 rounds fire for effect on charge super. I was, ah, fantastic. You don't sit on the gun to to fire charge super. It's got such a violent recoil, and you have to use a lanyard to fire it. That's a long bit of string, Gary. It was night time. We were firing away, and I was loving it. It was brilliant. It was just like second nature. It really is. As soon as that guy starts showing, bearings, you're there. You're pressing the buttons. Boom, 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 boom. It was just like our next size. As soon as we finished, he came up to me and clonked me again and said, piss off. You've had it now. <laughs> so then I started on another one, number one, and pestered him. And again, I just want... That's a great account, and I understand entirely how excited he was, how much he loved it, and how it was ambition. But he is killing people, and it's 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 this is the thing, isn't it? It's a war. At night, they had to carry out the usual military routine of guarding the gun positions, 
and uh, or rear echelons yeah. in case of surprise attack by a band of marauding Iraqis. And this is Gunnar Adam X. During the daytime, it wasn't too bad because you could see what was around you, what was happening. But when it started to get dark, it was pitch dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. That's when it started to get scary. You'd be sat there on stag guard thinking, could there be somebody sneaking up on the position? Boom, boom, that was the boom, main boom, worry. Boom, boom, boom. Well, they were lucky. But there's an even worse side to war. The reality of war was sometimes brought brutally home. And as ever, it was what happened to the civilians that seemed to cut deepest into the psyche. And this is once more Bombardier Warren Why. I had a nasty incident. I saw what happened to a family in a house when they got a rocket-propelled grenade attack. That stuck in my mind. I went to the padre and he recommended me to go and have a chat to them just to get it off my chest. It was a big help to speak to a complete stranger who had no idea what happened and just tell him exactly how I felt. A lot of people used it. Used it. That, that he means here. Yeah, the uh, padre and things. I think modern soldiers realise that suffering in silence isn't big anymore Whereas in years past, it was seen as a wimpy thing to do. I had some psychiatric help. And it's interesting, that's the same Warren Y was firing the guns and loving it. And yet when he saw what a, a rocket-propelled grenade could do, uh, there's a reality to the horror of it, isn't there? There is. Meanwhile, Bombardier Ray A was acting as a driver with a 432 APC armoured ambulance with the evacuation squadron, 1st Close Support Medical Regiment, who were attached to the 1st Battalion Royal Fusiliers. And this is Bombardier Ray A, who we've not heard from for a while. When they went out on patrols, we drove into battle with them. They'd got warriors and all the personnel would disembark out of the back into firefights and we were just sat there. When they called for medic, away we went, picked up the casualties. There'd be bullets flying, mortar rounds, artillery rounds. All I had was my own personal weapon. One of the bullets had gone into the stowage boxes where we kept our rations. I opened up my ration box and I thought, what's this? All my biscuits were smashed up and the bullet was embedded in my biscuits. If it hadn't stopped in my ration box, it would have stuck in the side of my head. So biscuits brown are pretty useful in one way because they're tough. Good old British Army biscuits, eh? Ray A was also sent to assist the crew of a British tank that had been badly hit in a tragic friendly fire incident by another British tank. And he goes on to say this. We were tasked to go and pick up the casualties. The two blokes that were killed, there, there was a right mess. There wasn't much left of them. It, it's disheartening. Of the, of the survivors, one of them was totally blind. One of the rounds flew in the front of his face and took his eyes, his nose and the top of his jaw out. I, I I don't know whether he's alive or dead now. He was conscious. We were helping get him out of the tank on, on, onto a stretcher and back into the back of the 432. The medic would be administering first aid while we were rushing him to the hospital. That, again, that's a terrible story. Very graphic. It was fortunate for everyone that the fighting did not last long. The Iraqi army, depleted by the Gulf War... Fragile in its morale and armed with old-fashioned weapons were totally unable to stand up to the cutting edge of the US and British forces. While the British secured southern Iraq, the US forces had charged on to Baghdad. Yeah, but uh, remember, you remember that all the reports was going to be a last-ditch site, uh, that the, the Iraqi guards were going to protect Iraq, there's going to be a huge last-ditch fight and everything. Else. That didn't happen, though, did it? 
No, and, and largely because the Iraqi army was too dispersed to put up any real coordinated resistance, and Baghdad fell with uh, the much-publicised symbolic fall of Saddam Hussein's statue on the 9th of April. So it's, it's, the whole war is over in a couple of weeks, then, isn't it? Uh, it is. Uh, is it three weeks? Uh, the war was over, uh, uh, but it's not the end of our story, is it? We've got we've got two more episodes on, on, on this, and I hope you, 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 you've enjoyed the way that the South Nazar at peacetime has suddenly become all warry. It's become very serious, isn't it? It has. It has. Uh, and we, 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 we think it makes a point of all those other episodes where not much was happening. This is what Reserve Forces Service is all about. It's when you're needed, you have to be there. And to be there, you've got to enlist. That's true. I think you should re-enlist, Gary. I think they'd have me. I, th- I think they probably would now. Cheers, oh, Pete. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?